Good morning, everybody. Today our scripture reading is from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drunk drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the f- same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Hello, how are we? Yes, we're good. All right. I have a, a throat. Can I get some, uh, some of these? Uh, I don't want to see anybody. <laughs> them all. There we go. Essentially blind. It's perfect. Um, ah, I got a throat thing going on. It's okay. My wife tells me it's my sexy voice. I'm going to go with that. And uh, yeah, so yeah, Watermark 201 is next week. Um, I'm going to spend the week um, finishing up material for that. And I think there's a few spots left open. There's going to be barbecue um, and conversation about the four sort of tenets of Watermark. Truth, beauty, community, and motion. Um, how we view the scriptures, how we view God, how we view the world around us, um, and, and what we think the gospel is telling us to do. Um, and what it means for us. And so we're going to talk about how all these things sort of intertwine. Um, and uh, I think it'll be, it's different. I'm a little nervous about it. I think it'll be good. Um, could go terrible. Who knows? But either way, you should be there to witness it. Um, so, yeah, we're still in First Peter. We're in chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. And we're going to dive into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And uh, we gather here in your name. Um, we designate a, just even, it's, it's a small portion of our week, God, um, and, and we center all of our thoughts, all of our time, all of our motions, all of our movements, all of our conversations, we center it all on you, and uh, we ask that, that you would equip us, that you would give us something vital to our life, so that, so that these, this way of being here in this room with our brothers and sisters, with you at the center, that this would somehow work its way into the rest of our life, that our days would be more filled, more and more filled with you being the center of everything and us being surrounded by a great cloud of, of your people. And uh, teach us how this works. Teach us how this is supposed to happen. Um, we want to establish your kingdom in this city. And there's lots of things that we need to deal with first. There's lots of uh, personal issues inside all of us that we need to cleanse ourselves from. There's ways we need to look at things, and, and you possess them, and we want to know them. So I ask that you would give us knowledge, and that you would give us wisdom uh, to apply this knowledge to the world around us. Um, so many things are unknown. So many things are, are not understood. Um, <clears throat> but we serve a God who has the answers. And so we're going to ask for a few of them this morning, that you would grant us those things. Speak through me. Allow all of us to be here and present and not distracted. Remove the distractions from this place, from this room, from our lives, from our hearts and minds. Um, let us push them aside and be perfectly present with you and with each other in your word. Thank you. In your name, amen. 
Okay, so Peter has gone from talking about a life that is centered on, on the things of God and, and how to have a, a completely meaningful life, centered on those sort of internal things, um, not the extrinsic things, the intrinsic things of um, pouring ourselves out for others, being filled up by God so we can be conduits of his love and his grace to the world around us and bring about change in the world. And so now he's going he's gonna to move sort of to an inward conversation about change in our own lives. Um, and it sort of starts right here in verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Um, by the way, I always forget to mention, if you want to follow along, there there's, should be Bibles in a lot of the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, um, you're free to take that with you. Um, and, uh, but if you want to follow along, and I, I prefer you oftentimes to, whether you're on an iPad or your iPhone or whatever, to, to read along the scripture so you can gain some context of where these words are and see what's going on around them. Um, so he starts off, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So there is this mindset that Jesus had that he used to navigate things like suffering and the difficult times in life. And it was a way of thinking. And whatever that way of thinking was, Peter says, we need to find a way to arm ourselves with that. Now, arm yourselves is, um, is a specific, it's not two words, it's actually one word. And I want you to repeat after me, the word is haplizo. Very good. It means, um, so there's, there's two words, there's two different meanings here, long spear or ship rigging. Um, the idea is the same. Um, if you think about it, at the beginning of a battle, there is lines of soldiers with giant shields, and this is how things start. And, and behind these shields are these massive, often 20, 25-foot spears that they're going to use. And up front, if they, can, if they can kill as many of the enemy as they can on the front lines, right off the bat with these really long spears and whatever tactics they have, they can turn the direction of the battle in their favor. Um, Ships rigging is the more likely definition. It is what is used more often um, in, in ancient Greek conversation, and it's referring to this, the ropes of a ship. Um, each and every one of these ropes strung up for a specific purpose. Each and every one of them under a certain amount of pressure and tension and weight. Um, by grabbing one of these ropes and applying stress and pressure to it, it has the ability to turn just ever so slightly the entire trajectory of that ship to change the way the wind hits it and to make it a more efficient trip or a less efficient trip or change the direction entirely. Um, if you're going on a very long journey, if you're off by just a little bit at the beginning, if one of those ropes is a little too tight, then your trajectory could be off by several hundred miles by the time you get to the end of your trip. Um, and so the idea here is that the mind of Jesus is sort of strung a certain way. It's sort of tensioned a certain way. He's working from a special certain place. And whatever that place is, we need to find that and we need to adopt that. I mean, there's two, there's two ways you can approach everything. There's two mindsets with which you can approach everything. One of them is from the flesh. One of them is from the spirit. Um, you know, two people suffer from cancer and one of them becomes very bitter and despairing while the other is a beacon of, of sort of honesty and, and hope to the people around them. Two people find themselves in the same abysmal financial situation. One of them is, is greedy and one of them is bitter and upset and jealous of those around them who are doing better. And the other is thankful for what they do have, and they find a way to navigate this world in a way to where they can even use their meager 
finances to change the world, to do something to help somebody in some way. Um, two people rise to the top of, of some company and become the CEO, and now they have riches and power. One of them uses those riches and power to aggrandize themselves and build buildings with their name on them. And the other person uses their status and their power and their finances um, to lift others up with them and to make things better and more peaceful for the world around them and to bring about good things in the world and, and work to establish the kingdom of God in their city. Um, there's two ways you can approach everything. Um, two different people living in a world where God is absolutely present. One of them just chooses not to recognize it and says, there is no God and I refuse to see any evidence otherwise. And the other constantly, every second is saying, what do you want me to do, God? Here I am. You've brought me here to this place in this moment. What do you have for me here? Why is it that I'm with this person? Why is it that I'm in this room? Make me aware of what you're doing and help me take part in it. There's two ways to live. One of these ways is very helpful, is very beneficial, is very peaceful. One of these ways brings about flourishing in your life and the lives of people around you. The other way causes tension and stress and problems and sin and anger and bitterness. It does not help you or anyone else flourish. It does not bring about anyone's salvation while the other way is, is, is what we want. So the question sort of that we have is, well, how do we get one mindset over the other? What is it that Jesus had? How do we attain it? How does God work to establish this in our hearts? Because God absolutely wants to, and so we have to know that he's trying. Well, one of the things that the early Christians have always known is about suffering, and Peter writes about this, and he says, for, whoso, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, the idea here is that it is through the suffering that we go through and the difficult times and the stress and the tension being put on the ropes that things are changed. It is the suffering that brings about our strength. We tend to think, looking forward from here in our lives, that the best times in our life will be when our children are born, when they're graduating, when we're on vacation, taking great pictures, when we're traveling, when we're accomplishing things, um, either in our job or financially, when we hit certain landmarks in our life, we look forward and we say, that's going to be a wonderful time. That's going to bring about the most joy and the most meaning in my life. And this is where we're a young church. A lot of you are there. The problem is when you actually ask people who have been through life and they're way farther down in life than you are, and you ask them, what has been the biggest, most important moment in your life? They tend to say the opposite of what I just said. They tend to say, well, it was when I, went, when I went through something incredibly difficult, when I was sick, or when I suffered intense loss. It, it refocused my mind and my life. It, it reminded me of what life is really about. You always hear about on people's deathbed, they realize what life is about. They realize life was about loving other people. I read this, someone, someone retweeted Donald Miller this week, and it was brilliant. It said, at the end of your life, when you're about to die, you realize life is about loving people, and you watch too much Netflix. And you tend to look back and see the things that actually changed you and had intense meaning in your life were not the really, really good times. It was the intensely difficult times. And so the early people of God have always known this. When I, I spent a few summers when I was in high school um, working at a climbing wall, um, and I was what's called a boule. Maybe you could climb, are you familiar with this? I was the guy on the ground, strapped to the floor, um, and I was wearing a harness, and I had ropes, and people would be climbing, and when they fell, it was my job to catch them. And sometimes if people were much bigger than me, 
um, they would fall and it would lift me up off the ground and I'm tensioned between the ground and the sky and I'm just hovering there and it's still my job to keep them from falling. Now, um, there's all kinds of things involved in this. Um, their life kind of depends on you, so it's kind of it's a good feeling of power. It's nice. Um, it's a bit of a trip. You're like, I could kill you right now. Um, but... There, once in a while, we would get these shipments of ropes in, and they were new ropes. And we, we always, we were told, when you get shipments of new ropes, you want to use them in the right way. You don't want to use them on, like, um, on heavy men, men that are bigger and more muscular and who weigh a lot, because they tend to stretch. They're not broken in. They have not yet been stretched. Um, and so if you put a large man on new ropes, when you give him 10 feet of slack and he falls... That could quickly turn into 15, maybe 20 feet of slack, depending on how high he is, causing him to swing maybe under an overhang and hit his head and have a concussion, and then it's all your fault. Um, and so you learn to use, maybe on the lighter women, you use the, the new ropes, and you slowly break them in, and you use old, established, stretched ropes that give people a softer landing and that are generally more safe. Um, this is kind of the idea that, that Peter's working with here. Um, as we are stretched, we become more useful for different things. Um, Hebrews chapter, 11, uh, chapter 12, verse 11 says this, for the, moment all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so he's talking about when you're going through something, it doesn't seem very pleasant at all. It seems downright painful. Um, and he uses the word discipline, and he talks about how it's unpleasant, but later you look back and you find that it actually made you a more righteous person. It made you a better person. It made you a more holy person. Um, and the word discipline, we hear that word and we kind of think of like a judge and, and a criminal, but that's not the word that is used here in the original Greek. Um, say this with me. The word is paideia. Paideia. The word, it means fathered. It means raised. Um, it's where we get our word pediatrics. It's where, uh, it's the idea of um, making children well. And so the idea here is when you're going through difficult times, the mindset with which you must have is that you are being disciplined not by a judge who is there to punish you, but by a father who is preparing you for life that is coming, for things that are coming your way. And whatever it is that you are going through, if you understood that it was being done for your own good and for your love, then you would look at it differently. Um, if you are a parent, if you're a father, if you're a mother, you understand how difficult it is to punish your children. Um, but you also understand how necessary it is because we have all been around children who have not been disciplined and we don't like them. <laughs> In order for a person to turn into a good, healthy, useful person with healthy relationships that doesn't take advantage of those who is, who is actually beneficial to have in your life, you must be raised in a certain way. You must have discipline. And so um, there's this, um, let's see, there's this uh, 17th century monk named Brother Lawrence. He did some amazing writings. Um, and he takes this idea and he kind of runs with it. And we're going to read one of his writings here, what he says about it. He says, God knows best what is needful for us and all that he does is for our good. If we knew how much he loves us, we should always be ready to receive equally and with indifference from his hand the sweet and the bitter. All would please that came from him. The sorest affliction never appear intolerable, but when we see them in the wrong light, when we see them in the hand of God who dispenses them, when we know that it is our loving Father who abases and distresses us, 
our sufferings will lose their bitterness and become even a matter of consolation. I love that. He says, when you're looking at your suffering, there's two ways you can look at it. He says, you can look at it in the wrong light, and you're going to see it as this terrible affliction, or you can look at it as, well, God let it into your life because there's something you need that you would not have gotten unless it was there. And this is how the original Christians actually looked at the original followers of Jesus. This is how they looked at their life. They were excited for the good times, but they did not expect the good times to be the learning, the times of learning, the times of great stretching, of making them more useful. It was always, always the more difficult times that they actually looked forward to. Oftentimes, when we talk about the idea that God loves us, this is misunderstood. Um, The world talks about a God of love as a God who would never let anything bad happen to you. Well, he would never do that. Why? Because he's a God of love. He would never let me feel pain. He would never let me feel anything because if he loved me, I would never be discomforted. He would never interfere. He would only keep bad things from happening to me. That's what love means, right? Um, C.S. Lewis takes this on full on. There's a, a book he wrote called The Problem of Pain. And here's what he has to say about that. Love, in its own nature, demands the perfecting of the beloved. That the mere kindness which tolerates anything except suffering is, in that respect, at the opposite pole from love. When we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul? Do we not rather than first begin to care? Does any woman regard it as a sign of love in a man that he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. I love that. He's saying, if you really love someone, you will care about their well-being, about their appearance, about their beauty, you will seek to help them maintain a holy purity. Not because, it's, it's not like, um, not because you love the beauty that is in them, but because you want them to feel this. And sometimes God has to interfere. You know, the ancient Jewish, Jewish uh, people used to write about Um, our relationship with God. And they used to always kind of put it in the context of our relationship with animals, specifically sheep and shepherds. This was the most widely used idea of talking about God's relationship with us. And there's stories in scriptures about how when a shepherd loses a sheep, he goes out to find it and he finds it in the bottom of a ravine and he climbs into the ravine, risking his own life and his own limb. And he finds the sheep and he puts it over his shoulders and he brings it back and he puts it there. But he doesn't just bring it back and put it down. He then takes it and he breaks its leg. And it's incredibly painful, and, and it, it's not something any of us would want to do. But why does he break its leg? So that it will stop walking into ravines. So it will stop wandering off from the flock, so that it will stay close to the shepherd. And at this point, when the leg is broken of the lamb, the shepherd now must carry the sheep on his shoulders for weeks And everywhere the sheep go, the shepherd goes. He is carrying this lamb. And then slowly as the leg leg begins to heal, the shepherd puts it down for short periods of time, only to have to pick it up again because it can't walk far. The shepherd has to feed it by hand, give it water by hand. And eventually, by the time the sheep can run and is fully healed, it's so used to being by the shepherd that it doesn't stray anymore. And so the breaking of the leg saved the lamb's life. And so C.S. Lewis, actually, in, the, in his book, The Problem of Pain, takes this a little farther, and he talks about, he uses a modern-day example, the same way the ancient Jewish writers did. Um, he uses the example of man's best friend, the dog, and he writes this, A person tames a dog so that he may love it, not so that it can be happy doing whatever it wants. 
The man's love for the dog cannot be fully attained unless it also in its fashion loves him. Nor can it serve him unless he, in a different fashion, serves it. So how do we make the dog lovable? We interfere with it. A dog in its natural state is dirty and smelly and destructive to your house. It ruins your carpet and it bites your children. But the man washes it and house trains it, teaches it not to bite, and is so enabled to love it completely. I think that's perfect. In interfering with the dog's natural tendencies, you're actually saving its life. You're actually giving it a life worth living. You're teaching it how to behave, and you will love it more, and it will love you more. And I love that picture of the dog. And so Peter's writing about this, and, and so he's basically telling them the discipline that you are going through is necessary for the stringing of your ship because it will sail into very difficult waters and those ropes need to be broken in, they need to be stretched, they need to be ready to roll because if they get loose or they snap or they break, if you just can't handle it, if you have not been prepared for the storm, you will be lost at sea and you will not find your way home again. And so now Peter actually wants to tell them, and this is how God has always worked, he he points back. Peter says, God has always worked this way in your life and he points back and here's what he says in verse 2. All that and we're to verse 2. Here we go. Um, so, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If you were at Skrillex last night, this just described your night. <laughs> Welcome to church. It's Sunday morning. Um, so he's basically telling them there was a way that you used to live, and you don't live like that anymore? And then he sort of asks them some, some very sort of complicated questions. Uh, kind of, he prompts them to think, um, how, long, how much time have you wasted of your life? How long have you spent in that lifestyle? How long have you been pursuing this way of living? And what has it done for you? How long have you devoted your life to the external passions to just getting the fix right now. Just making decisions based on what I get right now, having no concern for the consequences. A lot of us in this room are living right now with the consequences of the decisions that we have been making for months, for years, for decades. And all of those things, those little decisions, over and over and over, have culminated into your life right now and you're not happy. And you wish it was different. And you wish that so long ago you had just made some little decisions that were different and made a habit of making better decisions. Um, Researchers tell us that every single day we make 35,000 decisions. And they tell us that children make about, children under the age of 10 make about 3,000 decisions. They also tell us that about 10% of these decisions have potentially life-altering consequences. Every single day you are making 3,500 decisions that have life-altering consequences. 3,500. Yet we never stop to think about who exactly is steering this ship? Where exactly are we making our decisions from? Do we have some kind of basis upon which to make our decisions? Are we just every moment by moment, this would feel good, let's do this. This would feel good, let's do this. And play that tape forward, and where does it take you? Well, so far, it's brought you to here. Are you happy with it? And Peter says, isn't it time we change? 
How about if we try something different? How much time have you wasted? And what if you could do it again? What would you do? And he's really prompting them to look at their lives and say, how much time have you wasted doing this? And he says, I think we can do something different here. And we're, you know, we're Christians. You know what Christianity is about? Resurrection. That's what Christianity is. It is, without the resurrection, even Paul wrote, um, if there's no resurrection, there's no point in any of this. There's no point in Christianity. So any Christianity that talks um, about Jesus and death and burial and all that but doesn't mention resurrection is pretty useless because resurrection is the most important thing that we have because it tells us that everything can be fixed. Three days dead, smelly, rotting in the grave, we can fix that. God is powerful enough to bring that back. Your life, whatever it has become, God can bring that back. Tomorrow does not have to be like today. That's what resurrection means. Today can never be lived again. You can just say, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm over, I'm done. That was the day when things changed. And so there's some things you need to know about change that Peter wants you to hear. And they're very important things. Um, and it, it makes change very difficult because change requires a conscious decision to stand up and do something different. And, and here's what Peter says in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Oftentimes you will find, and, and here's the thing, um, not every teaching I give will be applicable to you today, to every one of you today. Maybe this will help you make sense of some things that happened in the past. Maybe it will help you make sense of where you are now, maybe. And maybe you'll keep this in your back pocket and it will make sense a little later on. Um, but oftentimes, when you decide to change, the people who you were with, who you have been living your life with, will turn on you. They will, for several reasons. One of them is, it takes great courage to change. Change is a very scary thing, to change your mind, to say, I think I'm going to go this way. You're going to stand up, basically, and you're saying, I've been wasting my time, and I don't want to live like this anymore, and I've been wasting my time, and, and so I'm going to go that way. And what you're saying to everyone there that is there with you, whom you have been heading there with, is, so you think we're wasting our time? So you think... We're just, what, lowlifes? Why are you being so judgmental? And they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. At first, they, they start out, ah, he's joking. You say, I don't, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah, right, I've heard that before. And they think you're joking. But when you actually start taking that step, it turns from joking to maligning. And they turn on you. When they look at you, what's happening is you're a mirror to everything that they wanted to be, everything that they wish they could do, and you are doing it, and it terrifies them. And when you look in a mirror and you don't like what you see, there's only two responses. You can either change, which is very hard, or you can break the mirror, and they're going to try to break you. This is normal. I want you to know it's okay. It's a normal process of change. You lose people. People turn on you. It's painful. It hurts. I know. And Peter's telling you this. It will happen. They will malign you when you no longer join them in that. We have a lot of people here. We tend to have um, a lot of skeptics. We tend to have a lot of agnostics. And, and I know, I don't know if any of you are here today because I, I can't see a thing. Um, but I know there's some of you who have 
stood up in a room full of, this is metaphorical, stood up in a, in, in a room full of your peers who were skeptics like you, agnostics, maybe atheists, and, and said, I think there's something happening. I'm having some doubts in my atheism. You see, I, I know a lot of Christians who were Christian and they had a lot of doubts. They became atheists and they actually had more doubts in their atheism. And so there's not a safe place, really, to be where you're not doubting. And you've stood up and you've kind of said, I have a lot of doubts. And I think there's something else. And I'm going to go this way. And your friends think you're joking. Starts off with a little mocking and then they start maligning. I want you to know what you're doing is very brave. I want you to know a lot of us have been there. A lot of us have been skeptics. And we applaud you. And we thank you. And you are welcome here. And we understand that people are turning on you. And what matters is honestly how you respond. Um, there is this certain posture that people take when they are enlightened, and we've all seen this, um, where you learn something new. You, you Either you say, I, I believe there was no God, now I believe there is, and you go this direction, or I believe there was a God, now I believe there isn't, and you go this direction, or I believe God was this way, and now I think God's this way, and you're moving over here. And it could be on any, honestly, any subject. It could be on your diet. It could be on raising children. It could be all these different things, but you are suddenly enlightened, and that's all you can talk about, and you steer every conversation towards how you're right and they're wrong in every single conversation, and it annoys the crap out of everyone. <laughs> and so there's this thing that enlightened people do um, that's not helpful. And so honestly, a lot of times, um, you need to do what Peter's been talking about, how he says, you're going to live the things of God for grace and peace and reconciliation, and then they will ask you to give a reason for the joy and the hope that you have. And when they do, you open up and you intellectually engage that. But there is this humility involved. There is this position of, I'm kind of new to this, and I changed, and it was very difficult, and I know they're kind of hostile to my change, and I get that, and so I'm going to humble myself and serve them, and maybe some of them will come along. Maybe all of them will come along. But there's something else that, um, that you need to remember that Peter wants you to know. It's in verse it's in the second half of verse 4. It says this, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this is a powerful thing you need to realize, is that you are responsible for you. You are not responsible for them and what they see and how they respond. You are responsible for your decisions, your ideas, your actions. Nobody else is. You are. And they are responsible for how they respond to what you do. You are to equip yourself to lean into God, to follow Jesus with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength, all your might. And you are to act in a way that is holy and righteous in this world. And when you do, you are not responsible for how they receive it. One of the things about being, being a pastor is, is there's, um, is you kind of have, a lot of times you know everybody's junk and it's very difficult because you wonder like why why would this person, with everything we've talked about, why would they go this direction? Why would they do this? Why would they do that? And I've had to come to the realization, another pastor told me, like, you're going to go crazy if you don't realize that all you can do is be obedient. That's all you can do. All every one of you can do is be obedient. How people respond to your obedience is on them. There's a word that he uses here. They will give an account. The word here is logos. Logos. It means a speech, a statement, a reason. It is... Um, you get the picture of someone standing before God, the creator of time and life, who gave you time and life, and you are now giving a speech defending how you spent that time and that life. And you are standing before God, and you are saying, 
Oh, here's what I did with it. I played a lot of Minecraft. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> what did it do for you? Literally nothing. Did nothing for me. <laughs> and you're going to have to give a speech. I, imagine having to defend last week or yesterday. What if God just stood here and I want each one of you to line up and tell me what you did yesterday and why? Oh, no. <laughs> and you're going to have to... This is the metaphor that's being, like, thrown out there. It's terrifying. And so there is this, um, there's this sort of this idea I've been using lately um, where um, I, I kind of describe it like bowling. Like, you go to a bowling alley and you see... See people get up and they bowl and they let the ball go, but then they start like waving their arms and they start like dancing, like pulling, using the force to pull the ball <laughs> into the right pin as if there is something they can do. Everything you can do, you've already done and you've let it go. And something I've learned is when you let it go, let it go. Just, there's nothing you can do. You can't control how people receive things. And there's a peace in that. And there's something in that that helps you sleep good at night, knowing that you're responsible for you, your spiritual health, and feeding yourself, and then pouring yourself out. So your actions, everything that you can do is within your control, and that is what you will stand before God and give an account and a defense for. But how people receive it has nothing to do with you. You can pray, and you can plead, and you can hope that they... And that's the terrifying thing. What if they don't turn into what I wanted them to be. I mean, you think of your children. And there's this peace in knowing that they will give an account. You will give an account for your part. And so do, do everything filled with prayer and holiness and a humble heart and know that there's, once you let it go, just let it go. There's a God who is in control of it still. You are not in control of it. God is. I saw this um, the stuff that goes through my Facebook timeline oftentimes is hysterical. And there was, um, I saw this video of like, there's, there's this guy, call him a boy, but he was like 25, 26, um, kind of socially inept um, person who's standing on his lawn and his dad had piled all of his video games on the lawn. You've seen this. And he's screaming at his dad who was sitting on the other side of the pile on a riding lawnmower. And his dad's like, you're going to move out. You're going to get a job. You're going to change your life. You're wasting your time. And you can tell the kids, for decades, his dad has turned this kid into this. His dad has been doing this to him, allowing this to happen, to go on for decades and de decades. He never disciplined his child, never trained him up for the future, for what life would be like. And then it's like he's in this desperate moment of, I'm going to try to do one thing in one second that's going to turn it all around. And he runs over all his kids' video games with the lawnmower. And his kid's grabbing the pieces and like hugging him and trying to wear them as a hat. He's like, no! It's just, just shrapnel everywhere. And it's this desperate father trying to undo what he spent decades doing. Change is slow. I guarantee you that did not fix the problem at all. Um, the fact is he did that. The fact is where you are right now, you did that. You are responsible for that. And so we stand up. We bathe it in the blood of Christ. We claim the resurrection. We ask God to fix it, bring it back to life. We stand up, we go a different direction.
understanding that it will be hard. They're going to turn on you. It's going to be difficult. But it's necessary and it's good. And it ends in peace. And so we're going to move towards communion. Maybe you're here this morning. Our communion service, you guys can go ahead and get ready. Um, Maybe you're here today and you feel like you've been stretched. You feel like uh, something's happening. You're just, you're just being stretched. And uh, I want you to know that that's good. It's not bad. That's, that's Jesus. You're being fathered. You're not being punished. You're being fathered. You're being turned into something really, really important that you need to be. And it's, I mean, yeah, I know it's easier for me to say that because I'm not going through what you're going through. But I'm, I'm telling you from people who were in prison who who sing the praises of God from prison and wrote letters from prison before they were executed, knowing full well this was going to happen. And they're telling you it's a gift. So that's all I can do is repeat what they say. I'm just a conduit of their message. Lean into it. Try to learn from it. It's all you can do. Don't waste it. Um, maybe you're here today and you have just lost time. You look back over your life and you're like, what? Just decades of wasted time. Maybe a small amount of time, maybe a large amount of time, I don't know. But you look where you are and you're like, I've been making these decisions. And it is not the future that I want. This isn't the present that I wanted. I thought at this age I'd be somewhere else. I thought I'd be in another place and here I am. Take communion, claim it. Say, I am responsible, God. I I now give you an account for what I've done. I have acted sinfully. I have acted from my flesh. I need to make my decisions from somewhere else. So give me your mind. Give me what you have. Restring this stupid boat of mine and put it on the right course because more storms are coming and I want to be strong. And so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and uh, spread around the room. And um, we take communion every single week at Watermark. It's a, it's a vital thing to our community um, because it's a re- constant reminder of Jesus and what he did, the ultimate suffering that led to the ultimate salvation, the ultimate God-fathering for us. Um, and we're not worthy of uh, the salvation that we are offered, the reconciliation we're offered through Jesus. But it is ours for the taking. And so, if you are a follower of Jesus, I would welcome you to take communion with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would love for you to become a follower of Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you about that. We have elders in the back who would love to pray with you, who would love to take you into the prayer room and, and, and talk to you and answer your questions. Um, so many people here have been skeptics and have found hope in Jesus, have found new life in Jesus and resurrection in so many areas of their life. And you can find that too. It is real. I promise you. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to take communion. And uh, we would love it if you would take it with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We love you. You're a holy, just, merciful, wonderful God. And you do so much for us. I ask right now that you would make us whole, that you would put us on a path towards righteousness, that you would remind us that, that oftentimes those pains that we were suffering, you were breaking our leg because we wandered from you again, and you were just saving us from danger. And you put us on your shoulders, and you carried us, and you fed us by hand, and now we've learned to walk with you. And there's so many other areas of our life that we need to do the same. Continue to mold us and shape us and father us and... Uh, Just do your thing, God. We love you. In your name, amen.